stories shape us. They help us form our identity. They provide a lens to view ourselves, others and our future. And not just our own stories, but stories from our parents and grandparents and further back down our family line. A couple of stories that shape me are actually from my grandmother. Now, her mother, my great-grandmother, was Māori, and she married a Pākehā, which was quite unusual in those days. And my grandmother remembers that that being quite hard. In fact, when she was at primary school, she would get a smack or a slap if she used a Māori word, which was indicative of the time. Now, I hadn't realised how much that had impacted her until until the birth of our firstborn, our wee daughter. And so on the way from home from hospital, we decided to call in on my grandmother so she could see her brand-new great-granddaughter. And uh, it was a lovely time. However, when we passed over, we, Amanda for a cuddle, my grandmother had a, a tear in her eye and apologised for the Maori blood that had found its way into my daughter because she had lovely olive skin. Stories shape us, they help form our identity, they provide lenses to view ourselves, others and our future. What, what stories shape you? With my grandmother, she became a Christian just before this actually and It was lovely to see her reshape her stories because of her faith in God and the Holy Spirit's work until she moved to a place where she was very comfortable and embraced her Māori background because of the work that God did in her life. One of the wonderful things about being a Christian is these stories, these powerful stories in our background that are negative can be reshaped and drawn into the story of Jesus. And the stories that shape us that are positive can be enriched and made alive as, again, we connect these stories to the great story of Jesus Christ. Today we come to a story that not only shapes us as Christians, but also our denomination, the Presbyterian Church of Aotearoa, New Zealand. This Bible story not only helps us with our own identity, but with our collective unity, our collective identity. It provides a lens to view ourselves, others and the future. And it's all to do with a rather unusual botanical event. Exodus 3, the story of the burning bush. Uh, You may not realise that the burning bush is the denomination's official emblem. The burning bush used to be the standard on all our letterheads as churches and business cards and the like. It can be found often in older churches, uh, in, in embroideries, and in stained glass windows, uh, durning lecterns, uh, even embossed in carpets, <laughs> or in our church, in our communion chairs. You may not have noticed that our communion chairs in our chapel have the emblem of the burning bush embossed in them. The emblem of the burning bush. So why has our denomination, the PCANZ, taken the symbol of the bush that would not be consumed and taken it as our emblem? Well, as we open up Exodus 3, we're going to find out not only this, but also how it affects us personally. So if you've got your Bibles or you can use the sheet that uh, you have in front of us, we're going to open up Exodus 3. We're going to see four things. We're going to see the holiness of God and the compassion of God. And then we're going to see how these foreshadow, point to the holiness of Jesus and the compassion of Jesus. So let's dive into Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. 
Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now from the last sermon we had in Exodus, we recall that the young man Moses, a prince of Egypt, had fled for his life from Egypt. Why? Because he had taken matters into his own hands, tried to rescue an Israelite and killed an Egyptian slave driver. And he escaped to Midian. So where's Midian? Well, you'll see on that map there that, that Egypt is in the top left and about between two and 300 kilometers to the east is Midian. Moses made his way there, felt safe. He settled down. He married the daughter of a priest and from Midian, enjoyed the family business, which was tending sheep. One day he's out in the wilderness and something most amazing happens, turns his life upside down, verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame, a flame of fire out of the midst of bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. This time's a good opportunity to draw your attention to the burning bush that I have on your right, my left. Have you noticed that when you came in? The burning bush. Isn't it clever? You'll notice at the bottom with the Hessian and the stones is the desert, and then we have the wonderful flames. If you're close, you can see a white flower, and that white flower represents the voice of God. And then we have the smoke rising above the burning bush. It's a lovely counterpoint, isn't it, to the basket where we have the baby Moses next to it. I said to Les, can't wait till we get to the parting of the Red Sea. (laughs) No pressure, Les. (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful expression of the burning bush there? Now, a few things about the burning bush. Here we have a reference. Do you notice the reference to the angel of the Lord? Now, who's who's the angel of the Lord? Now, the angel of the Lord is very different from a normal angel. He first makes his appearance to Abraham and then to Abraham's concubine, his second wife, Hagar. The angel of the Lord appears to Joshua, to Gideon and Samson's parents. But who's this angel of the Lord? Now, to answer this question, we have to answer another question. And this is the question that will help focus our answer. Before Jesus, so we're talking Old Testament days, what could God do if he wanted to appear to someone? You see, God couldn't just show up. We know this because of Exodus 33:20. So later on, at the foot of Mount Sinai, we'll fast forward a bit, Moses says, I want to see you face to face. I want to see you, God. And what does God say? Exodus 33:20. he says, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. This is the problem, isn't it? If God was to appear in his glory before any one of us, we could not stand. In fact, we could not only not stand, but we would fall down dead on the spot. God's glory, his holiness needs to be veiled somehow. So to overcome this, God would appear in the Old Testament, God would appear in another form, a veiled form called the angel of the Lord. So if God appeared in his glory before Moses, Moses would be dead, and that would certainly change things quite dramatically. So God appears in the form of a burning bush. 
And other times he forms, appears in the form of a great warrior to Joshua. Uh, another time to Samson's parents, he appears as a man. In fact, they weren't even quite sure it was an angel until, <laughs> until he did a few things miraculously. So the angel of the Lord is a veiled form of God. So back to Moses, his eye is caught by some flames. As he gets a little closer, he sees that the, fl- the branches are ablaze, but they're not breaking off and falling down and turning to ashes. There's no blackening or anything. And puzzled, we see in verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Moses had to remove his shoes. Death was at hand for Moses because even in veiled form, this was a holy place. Not because the ground was holy, but because of the presence of God. And these words show us the holiness of God. We see in the the burning bush, God as being a holy and great God. Now, we often consider love to be the chief characteristic attribute of God, and rightfully so. John's first letter, twice John talks about God is love. God is love. But alongside this, the Bible also declares that God is holy. Again, if we fast forward to the foot of Mount Sinai and Moses is up there receiving the law, as he receives the law, five times God says, I am holy. In fact, five times he says, because I am holy, you must be holy. So God is love two times. God is holy five times. And for a sinner like Moses and you and I, this holiness is a big problem. You see, because God is holy and we are not, we would fall down dead in his presence. Hence again, the whole angel of the Lord thing. Indeed, it is It is because God is both holy and loving that at one moment I can be filled with terror and the next minute filled with great peace. Because God is both holy and loving, at one moment I could be filled with great terror and the next moment great peace. Indeed, uh, Jonathan Edwards great American preacher and theologian, once preached a sermon called this, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. What a sermon title. Wish I'd thought of that. It's a very famous sermon title. You may wonder why. But once you get over the shock of the title and actually read the sermon, most of that time he's talking, he says basically, if you fall into God's hands without Christ, this is grim because he's a holy God. And then for most of the rest of the sermon, he says, but listen to this. If you have Christ, look at the wonder and the peace that we have. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. He could have actually rephrased that sinners in the hands of a loving God. But it just reminds us that even though God is love and we rejoice in that, God is also a holy God and there are consequences. And so back to Moses, back to the burning bush. God has more things to say apart from take your shoes off. Verse 6. And God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, 
the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. I am, declares God, I am the God of your forefathers, Moses. You've heard the stories. You've heard how I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now I'm appearing to you. So hold on to your hat, for the ride is going to get very wild. Yes, Moses knew the stories that had been passed down from generation to generation. Stories that gave him identity, helped him understand who he was, and a lens from which to see himself, others, and his future. And he knew that his forefathers had met a holy God. And now he's meeting this holy God, and no wonder he's filled with dread. No wonder Moses hides his face. No wonder he's deeply afraid. However, what is this awesome and holy God doing? What's he up to? Surely there is judgment as he speaks to a sinner, this holy God. But no, there's quite a surprising turn we see at verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering and have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. What a surprise. Instead of a holy God bringing judgment as Moses and his people deserve, we have a God, a holy God, who is compassionate. He sees the pain of his people, he feels their pain, and he has a plan. And what's this plan? Well, the verbs in verse 5 help us see God's plans. Notice the verb. God has seen the affliction. God has heard their cry. God knows their suffering. And so what does he do? He comes down to deliver and will bring them up to a good and broad land. Isn't this good news? This holy God, this fearful God, this God that would fill us with dread is a God of compassion and comes down to rescue. He's heard the cry and he's coming to rescue. Now, if Moses could think straight, uh, and I don't think he could, I think he's probably just overwhelmed, but if he could think straight, he might say something like this. God, this is awesome news, but aren't you in the wrong place? Your people are a couple of hundred miles to the west. It's just me here. So thank you for letting me know your plans. Good luck. Let me know how you get on. And probably pointing to where God's people are. Well, God's got news for Moses, hasn't he? Verse 10, this is where Moses' life gets turned upside down. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. We can imagine that Moses throws his hands up and says, What? Me? (laughs) Verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he's right, isn't he? Who am I? I mean, this is the, this is the deliverer, the self-appointed deliverer who couldn't even rescue one Israelite 
without murdering someone and having to flee the country. His credentials are hopeless. (laughs) Why me? (laughs) Why me? There must be someone else, Lord. Verse 12. And God said, but I will be with you. I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, it's impossible to overestimate God's response here to Moses. This is a big answer. This is the ultimate answer. This is not just reassuring a lonely shepherd who's been asked to do the impossible. God's answer is the end goal of all of humankind. Moses, I, the Most High God, the Holy God, am with you. Remember back to creation. Remember back to Adam and Eve. Why were they created? Why did God create Adam and Eve? To be with God. So God could be with them. Before the fall, we see God walking with them in the garden in the cool of the evening. Why was God doing that? To fellowship with them, for friendship, for companionship. Before the fall, God wanted to be with Adam and Eve. He wants to be with us. But then there was the fall. And what was their punishment for their rebellion? The worst of all punishment. I mean, there's the curses in Genesis 3. Remember, Adam was cursed and the land... He said, look, the land's going to uh, now produce thistles and thorns and weeds and you're going to really struggle to get food and eke out a living. That was the curse for Adam. And the curse for Eve, if we remember, pain and childbirth. But that wasn't the worst. The worst was they were banished from the Garden of Eden. They were banished from God's presence. Basically, you can look at the Bible as from the fall, how can God be with the people he loves. That's really what the Bible's about. How can we he restore us to him? And so when you peel back the layers of our heart, our deepest cry before God is, who am I before a holy God? And God's response is, I will be with you. And because I am with you, I will make all things right. Now, if Moses, he's not really in the good, a good place at the moment. This is all a bit of a bombshell, and we can understand it. Moses, he needs a lot more convincing. And so next week, we're going to continue with Moses. And if you know the story, he gives excuse after excuse, and Moses responds with much patience until Moses accepts the call returns to Egypt to start that process of deliverance. But for now, we'll leave Moses very puzzled and concerned at the burning bush and look at some of the implications for us. First, we'll look at how this points to Jesus and then we'll look at the implications to us. So how does, when it comes to Jesus, how does the burning bush foreshadow, point to the holiness of Christ? Well, it's in the coming down to rescue and the going back up to the broad land. Let me explain. And we'll use Philippians chapter 2 as the basis for that. So first of all, the holiness of Christ. Philippians 2, 6. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, Jesus, in the form of God. Now what does that mean? Hebrews 1, 3. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, 
and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. See, Jesus is the radiance of God. He is the holiness of the Father. It is imprinted in his Son. The holiness of the Father is imprinted in his Son. And if we're seen, if Christ appeared in his form of God, we would drop down dead. (laughs) So again, Jesus has to become veiled in the same way that God was veiled as the angel of the Lord in the burning of bush. How is Jesus going to come down veiled? Well, Philippians 2, 7 tells us uh, three things. Three things. Christ emptied himself, that's the first thing, by taking on the form of a servant, that's the second thing. Third thing, being born in the likeness of men. Verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Jesus, who's the very form of God, the radiance of God's glory, could not dwell amongst us. So he did three things, emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, became human. And this is why he could come down as a baby. This is why he could grow up to be a man and walk amongst us, because he emptied himself of his glory. But every now and again, every now and again in the Gospels, his glory breaks through. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus takes three of his disciples up into the mountain, and there they are met by who? By Moses. Surprise, Moses on a mountain. (laughs) Seen that before, haven't we? Moses and Elijah on the mountain. And as the disciples are watching, Christ's glory breaks through so that he shines brighter than the sun. His disciples can't look at him. And there's this voice that booms from heaven. Behold, this is my beloved son whom I love. And just for that moment, just for that moment, the holiness of Jesus broke through. His glory broke through. And the burning bush at Exodus that points to the holiness of the living God, to our Father God, also points to the Mount of Transfiguration where the glory of Jesus is revealed. And how does the burning bush point to the compassion of Jesus, the love of Jesus? Well, as I mentioned before, it's that coming down as God was coming down to rescue his people and then Jesus went back up to prepare a place for you and I. And we see this so clearly in the rest of that Philippians 2 passage from verse 9 and 11. So Jesus has come down, he's emptied himself, he's taken on the form of a servant, he's become a human form. But after he died on the cross, verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in Exodus, God promised Moses that he would come down to God's people, rescue them and take them to the promised land. Jesus has done the same. He's come down. He rescued us from the cross and he has gone to the heavenly promised land where we're told in John 14, he is preparing a place for us. The heavenly promised land. And so again, we see the burning bush not only points to the holiness of Christ, his glory, but also points to his love and his compassion, how he enjoyed, endured the cross. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the Father. It's Hebrews 12 too. And so, 
the events in Exodus foreshadow point to the coming of the Son of God. just want to finish now with some implications for you and I. Implications for our denomination in taking up the emblem of the burning bush. So why did John Knox, handsome dude that he was, he founded the Presbyterian Church in Scotland. Why did they, he and the founding fathers take the emblem of the burning bush? Well, our founders were very careful to declare that God was not only a God of love, but he was also a God of holiness. If we overemphasize one over the other, we distort God. And so, if we emphasize God as a holy God, then we are crushed under the five times command to be holy because God is holy, and we just can't do it. However, if we go the other side and consider God only to be love, then he becomes like a benevolent grandfather in the sky that turns a blind eye to whatever we want to do, turns to license. We take for granted well, I can do this thing that I know doesn't really please God, but because he forgives me very easily and loves me, I'll just go ahead and do it. It's only when we get the holiness and the love of God in balance that we really understand who our Heavenly Father is and can have genuine fellowship with him. And a final twist on the image of the burning bush. Because... uh, The Presbyterian Church was born in the midst of uh, much uh, persecution. To much persecution, uh, our founders wanted to be like the burning bush. They wanted us to be like the burning bush. Why is that? Well, one of the early images of the burning bush used by the Presbyterian Church had underneath it, in Latin, these words. I won't pronounce the Latin. I'll go for the English. Burning but flourishing. Presbyterian Church was born under persecution and they wanted to burn but flourish. No matter the opposition that comes our way, that we would not be destroyed but instead declare God's glory just as the burning bush would. Despite the worst that the devil can throw at us and the world, we will not crumble and burn but we will declare God's glory and even flourish. So whether it's a health issue, financial reversal, whether it's a relationships uh, difficulty, uh, we will burn with God's glory, we will not be consumed, but we will flourish. This is our heritage. This is our story. Not just us, us as individuals, but us as a denomination that despite the worst that happens to us, we will stand firm and declare the glory of God. We will not be destroyed, but we will flourish. Stories. Stories are the lens that we view ourselves, we view others, and see our future. Our story is the story of the burning bush. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a holy God. Goodness me. If you appeared at the moment unveiled, we would all crumble into ashes. But you love us and have compassion on us. And not only did you speak through the burning bush, but more wonderfully, you sent Jesus. And because he died on the cross, he has gone up to you with you, Lord, and sitting at your right hand and preparing a place for us. And we thank you. Help us, Lord, to get that balance of your holiness and your love right, that we may walk confidently 
as your dear children and live our utmost for your highest. We pray this through Jesus' name. Amen.